Romans chapter 8 from verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Then I'd ask you to turn back to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 begins with Peter and John, two of Christ's apostles, about to go into the temple. And at the temple porch, there is a certain man lame from his mother's womb. And he asks Peter and John for some charitable contribution. And he, Peter says, you look at us. And Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk and the man not only stands up and walks but leaps about entering the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God now everybody knew this lame man who sat in Solomon's porch and that explains what begins then in verse 11 now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John all the people ran together to them in the porch which is called Solomon's greatly amazed So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets, since the world began. Amen. Amen. We're tracing out the saving purposes of God, a God who acts in sovereign love and mercy toward those who deserve his righteous condemnation for the sins which we have committed. We've seen from Romans chapter 8 that God has predestined a people to be conformed to the image of his beloved Son, that Christ may be the firstborn among many brothers. Not just that he might be eminent, but that he might be pre-eminent, and that God in the person of his Son might be magnified and glorified. And having then foreknown 
or foreloved and foreordained this people whom God predestined these he also called that is he sent his gospel to them so that under the power of the Holy Spirit they might be brought to God and those he called these he also justified that is he declared them to be righteous in his sight and then those he justified these he also glorified but our question this evening then is how do we get from being called to being justified because in our experience there's if you like something of a gap between the call of God and God's declaration that we are righteous in his sight and as we work our way through this sequence of salvation, we've emphasised that Romans 8 throws the light upon the sovereign acts of God. It is God who predestines, God who calls, God who justifies, and God who glorifies. But we're trying to bridge these gaps. We're going to try and explain as we go what's happening in the spaces between these divine acts. In terms of our experience as sinners in God's hands who are being dealt with in mercy. The responses that we make to what God has done for us and is doing in us. So between this calling and this justification lies a God-worked change in us. It is regeneration and conversion. It is the new life and our response to that new life in repenting and believing. And on the basis of that transaction then, God is pleased to declare us righteous in his sight on account of Christ's righteousness put to our account. Now with regard to regeneration, we could deal with that separately, but we're bundling it under the, the idea of God's call. And you remember we said there's a universal call. There's the preaching of the good news to every creature. But God, in his grace and mercy, as that universal invitation goes out, works by his spirit, as we saw last Sunday evening, to bring people to himself. So that the preaching of the gospel has this enlivening effect under the power of the Holy Spirit. And our response to that, when the Spirit begins to work in our hearts, when he works life in us, we repent and believe. Now that doesn't just bubble out of us spontaneously. It is the response of a renewed heart to the call of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what we call conversion, a turning to God. Now, in your Bible... The language of conversion in English is relatively rare. You'll find it a couple of times in the book of the Psalms. Just a couple of illustrations from there. Psalm 19 and verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It's in Psalm 51 and verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. It's in the words with which we began our service in Matthew's Gospel. Unless you become as little children, are converted and become as little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And it's there in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out and so on. So if you're looking for the English word conversion, you're not going to find it very often in your English Bible. But the reality of conversion is prominent. In fact, the Greek that is used is prominent more often than the word that we translate uh, that is translated conversion is found in our text let me just give you a few instances you don't necessarily need to turn to all of these but i want to give you a sense of how frequently this occurs let's restrict ourselves to the acts of the apostles acts chapter 9 verse 34 and 35 there's a man called aeneas who's been bedridden eight years Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now it doesn't say they were converted, but that's what that language means. They turned to the Lord. Over a couple of pages in 11 and verse 21. They're in uh, Cyprus. They go from uh, Cyprus and Cyrene, these men. They come to Antioch. They speak to the Hellenists, the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Or they were converted. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 13. Uh, 15, sorry. Men, say Barnabas and Paul... Why are you sacrificing or trying to sacrifice to us? We also are men with the same nature as you, and we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, or be converted from these useless things to the living God. Acts chapter 15 and verse 19. The Jerusalem Council I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Acts chapter 26, 18 to 20. <clears throat> I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light to convert them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. And then you'll find something similar in 2 Corinthians 3, 1 Thessalonians 1. My point is this, that although you might not find the word in English convert or conversion, that that reality is sown throughout the New Testament and it is particularly prominent then in all of these instances where the gospel is being preached in power and the result is that those who were dead in their trespasses and sins being made alive by the power of God the Holy Spirit turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven even Jesus who is delivering us from the wrath to come and there you've got an extra one 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 9 and 10 
So all through the New Testament, when you see this language of men sent to turn and the turning that results when the gospel is being preached, you are seeing this reality of conversion. And it's that reality that sits in that space, humanly speaking, between the call of God in the gospel and the justification that God works and bestows upon those who turn to Jesus Christ. And we're simply going to use Acts 3 and verse 19 as a case study this evening in this converting reality. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before. We begin with the apostolic exhortation. I love the way Peter deals with this. Ted Donnelly uses this, by the way, in his uh, little book, his outstanding short book on Peter, Eyewitness of His Majesty, as an example of effective evangelistic preaching. And he draws attention to the way in which Peter goes from the object of their attention, which is this man who was lame, who's now running around the temple, dancing and leaping because he's been made able to walk, to the Christ by whom this great mercy was accomplished. <clears throat> Peter's path is short and his direction is clear. If you look at what he actually says, the speed at which he does it, it's almost abrupt. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us? He says, first of all, you're looking at this man and you're thinking, how in the world is he now walking around and, and leaping? And then you're looking at us and you're saying, who are these men who have accomplished these great things? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. What's that got to do with anything? Well, it's got to, ultimately, it will be Peter saying, now it's faith in his name that has made this man well. But you see how rapidly he sets a crucified Jesus before these people. Don't look at him. That's not what's important. And don't look at us. We're not who's important. It is Christ and him crucified with whom you need to deal. And he directs attention straight away to Jesus of Nazareth. And he declares his person and his work. This servant Jesus, the servant of God, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. He confronts them with their sin. You denied the Holy One and the just. You hear the force of the contrast. You killed the prince of life. This is something that cuts them to the heart. He emphasizes the power of the Savior. His name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. He emphasizes the significance of faith. The faith which comes through Jesus has given this man perfect soundness in the presence of you all. He underscores divine revelation. Brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But you had no cause to be ignorant. Those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, 
and be converted. Don't look at him. Don't look at us. Consider Jesus. This is the servant of God who came into the world. God sent him for salvation in accordance with his revelation. And you took him and you chose a murderer over him and killed the prince of life. You denied the holy one and the just. But this is the Jesus who is able to make a lame man walk. This is the Jesus who is able to put life in your dead soul. This is the Christ in whom if you will trust him, you too will be delivered. Repent, therefore, and be converted. The facts of the gospel and the need of the gospel that these people have leads to this immediate and direct call for repentance and conversion. Peter says, in effect, this is true, and you now need to respond to the truth as it is in Jesus. Now, I ask you, brothers and sisters, do you have a different gospel today? You may not have men who are lame walking and leaping around you. You may not be standing in Solomon's porch, but are you going to preach any other Jesus? Is the need of men not still that they would turn from their God-rejecting sinfulness to put their faith in the Lamb of God who suffered and died in the place of the ungodly? Are they not still denying the Holy One and the just? Are they not still neglecting that which God has spoken? We have precisely the same gospel. We may need to apply it to different people. But the same Christ who died and rose again, from whom faith comes and in whom life is found, is the Jesus whom we still proclaim. And then there is a spiritual operation. And it's not stated here, but it is implied. And it's that not stated but implied that lies behind both this language and all those instances that we've looked at of people who actually turn from idols to God, who turn from their empty and sinful and vain pursuits, their rebellious ways to the God of salvation. Because what Peter's doing is he's issuing the gospel call. Paul does it in Athens of all places. God now commands all men everywhere to repent. This Jesus whom I proclaimed to you, whom God has raised from the dead, giving a, a token, an indication that he will judge the world in righteousness by this very man. That God says, you now respond to this truth. You repent of your sins. You turn to Jesus Christ. Now, why is Peter saying these things? It's because he actually expects God to work as the gospel is being proclaimed. After all, Peter had heard the Lord Jesus say in John chapter 6 and verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then down in verse 65, not 65... Yes, it is. Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. Now, we might read that negatively. Well, no one's going to come unless the father draws them. What about reading it positively? 
They will come because the Father will draw them. They will not come unless the Father draws them, but Peter preaches an anticipation that as the good news is proclaimed, God will call his chosen people to himself. Christ himself had said, unless you are converted and become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He had said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. What happens when someone is born again? What happens when the Holy Spirit puts life into a dead heart? They repent and they are converted. Well, who does that? The man does, the woman does. But you said they were dead. Ah, but they've been given life. This is the converting power of God in his gospel. And we as Christians, we preach in dependence and anticipation of God in his mercy working through the gospel to save sinners like us. Not better sinners. Not the the better class of sinners but sinners as bad and as wretched as me and you. After all, if Peter was relying on his own persuasive powers or on the native strength of the people to whom he preached, do you think he would have begun with people who had denied the Holy One and the just and had murdered the very Son of God? If it's all about human strength and wisdom, that's not where you start, is it? Why are you preaching to them, Peter? Because I have a Christ who said... Preach the gospel to every nation, beginning at Jerusalem. Go to the God murderers. Go to those who took the Son of God and killed the Prince of Life and tell them that if they will repent and be converted, God will have mercy upon their souls. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of how he came to them and how he and his friends preached the gospel to them and it came not in word only but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sakes and what was the consequence when the word of God was preached with this spiritual force and conviction that you turned to God from idols Now, it wasn't so much that God turned you. You turned. God made you alive. In one sense, God must have turned you. But your experience was that you heard us and God working in you. You began to understand what you'd not understood before and to feel what you'd not felt before and to want what you'd not wanted before. And you repented of your sins and you turned to the God of your salvation. My friends, then, this salvation is the gift of a God who saves, whom God has predestined. These he will call. And our job is to declare that gospel call and to make known a Christ who saves and to call all kinds of people all across God's world to repent of their sins and to be converted. And to do so not with a kind of fatalistic misery, but with the holy expectation that the God who has said that this is his gospel and the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes will work in the hearts of his chosen people as the gospel is proclaimed. And he will bring in multitudes from every kingdom, tribe, tongue and nation. My friends, you speak 
to your husbands and your wives. You speak to your brothers and your sisters. You speak to your sons and your daughters. You speak to your friends and your neighbours. And you do so in the confident expectation that in his good time and according to his sovereign power and mercy, God will be pleased to open the deaf ear, to open the blind eye, to make tender the hard heart, to bring life where there was death, to shine light where there was darkness, to show the glory of God as it shines in the face of Jesus Christ. Why do we turn? Lamentations 5.21 Oh God, turn me, and I shall be turned. I turn because God turns me. My experience is of leaving my sins and coming to Jesus Christ. But when I trace it back to its origin, why did I do that? Why did I repent? Why did I believe? Why me? Because God chose you. Because God loved you. And having loved you and chosen you, he called you. He worked in you. And you might have stood in a crowd like this and said, I am the least likely candidate. Why should God save a sinner like me? I denied the Holy One and the just. I chose a murderer over the Prince of Life and I had the Prince of Life put to death. And the only answer you will ever have to that is, because God is God, merciful and gracious, full of long-suffering and tender mercies. But there is a personal action. That's what's going on, if you like, behind the scenes as Peter preaches. And the powerful gospel preached in dependence upon the Holy Spirit demands a response. See, Peter doesn't say this is a take-it-and-leave-it gospel. Peter doesn't say it doesn't matter what you do with this. He says this is true, and you now need to repent and believe. And some of you are sitting here who have sat here morning and evening, almost every Sunday, sometimes for weeks or months or years or decades. And the good news of Jesus Christ has been proclaimed to you again and again and again. And I am telling you again this evening that you must respond to the gospel. That you need to hear again tonight what God says through his servants, the apostles, and through this preacher and that you are obliged to repent and to turn from your sins because these things are true. Peter says when you listen to these things, you need to change your minds and you need to change your lives. You need to change your mind. You need to repent of your sins and you need to confess your transgressions. This is the language of repentance. You need to understand that the way you have thought and felt and lived up to this point is wrong. That you have not esteemed God and his Christ in the way that you should. That you have not walked before him in righteousness and holiness. You need perhaps for the first time in your life to face your sin. See, most people don't want to deal with their sin. They hide it away in the dark corners of their lives. They'll sweep it where it cannot be immediately determined. It's one of the reasons why so much sin takes place in the darkness. 
And it's one of the reasons why particularly brazen sinners do what they do in the light. It takes a particular kind of stubbornness and arrogance to sin extravagantly where everyone can see. And to repent is to drag your sin into the light of God's word. I don't know if you've ever seen anything so vile and ugly that it turns your stomach. Sometimes you see things dredged up from the bottom of the ocean, don't you? And you think, well, that's pretty grim. But it's also kind of funny, you know, the blobfish or something like this. It's ugly. Or, or one of those dogs that wins the ugliest dog in the world competition. It's got its tongue this way and its eye that way and an ear that way. Think, well, it's ugly, but, yeah, it's kind of funny. Have you ever encountered something that turns your stomach? That's what happens when you see sin your sin for what it is it's what makes the the psalmists of the old testament someone like david cry out in those psalms of contrition and confession lord have mercy upon me it's what made the tax collector in the story that jesus told cry out oh god be merciful to me a sinner It's what made David understand that when Nathan pointed the finger at him and said, King David, you are the man. You've condemned yourself out of your own mouth. You are the man who deserves to die. David's heart broke within him. It's Peter. When the Lord looks across that courtyard at the man who's just denied him for the third time, goes out and weeps bitterly. It's a man called Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus who looks into the brightness of the glory that's appeared before him and says, Lord, who are you? And here's the response. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's the Ephesians who realise that they've been dabbling in idolatry, that they've been trusting in false gods. It's the Thessalonians who turn from idols because they've realised that they are empty and vain. It's the Jews who understand they've been trusting in their own righteousness, who've been relying upon formal, empty, shell religion rather than a living relationship with God because of faith in him and the sacrifice whom he has provided and who are cut to the heart and if you can't think of anything particular if you're even now perhaps saying well but what have I done what is it that I've done wrong I will tell you you have denied the holy one and the just you don't love my Jesus and you deserve hell because of it you have not trusted in God who is eminently and ultimately trustworthy. And that deserves his condemnation. And when you begin to see sin in the light of God's word, when you begin to understand the beauty and the glory of God in Christ, when the Holy Spirit begins to make you aware of the kind of man or woman you are and have been, when he makes you face your sin, preacher says repent 
once you've seen what you've done and what you are, turn from your sin because you know that there is mercy with God. You see, you need to understand what God is like as well as what sin is like. Judas knew what his sin was like, didn't he? But he didn't know what God was like. And that's why he despaired. And he went and hung himself, having flung back the Lord's blood price to the Jews in the temple. But you see, the Holy Spirit will teach you that you are a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. He will change your mind about God and Christ. And Peter says, you change. You stop thinking the way that you've been thinking and you start thinking about what is real and true and right. You start thinking right thoughts about your God. You start thinking clear thoughts about Jesus Christ. You start understanding sin as it is and you start understanding that God will receive those who call upon him. And you leave your sins behind. Change your mind. Change your life. Change your direction. This is faith and reformation. You've been going that way. Change your mind about everything and you will turn and you will follow after God. You've been walking away from God. You've had your back toward Jesus Christ. Now turn to God in Christ Jesus. The one whom you denied, the Holy One and the just, confess him. You are ready to put to death the Prince of Life. Own him as your life and your redeemer. Go back to God. Turn your face. Turn your steps toward him. Whatever you were doing before that was contrary to God, now do the opposite. Be transformed by the power of the gospel. You understand perhaps now what lies behind what Paul says to the Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, what is he? He's a new creation. Old things have gone and the new has come. What's gone? Everything. All that I used to think and feel before, all my sinful appetites and desires, they have fundamentally been put to death. What has come and keeps on coming? The newness of this new life in Christ Jesus. I am not what I long to be, no, but I am not what I once was. I've changed my mind. I've changed my life. Oh, you must be really impressive. It's a really wonderful thing when you can kind of get a grip on yourself. No, 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 you don't understand. God told me, change your mind. God told me, change your ways. God turned me, and I have turned. God gripped me, and I have come to him. God spoke to me, and he made me to hear. And I have come to him in Christ Jesus. Repent and be converted. Respond to the truth about Jesus Christ. Acknowledge him to be who he really is. And trusting in him, walk in the footsteps of him whom you once despised and denied. It is quite remarkable, isn't it? Peter says to the people who killed Jesus, follow him from now on. <laughs> now what kind of power can affect that? What kind of power lies behind those beautiful histories that we heard this morning? 
This is how I was. This is what I thought. This is what I felt. This is how I lived. But praise be to the God of my salvation. I am not that person anymore. If I were to put Ryan and Erica on the spot, did you change? Yes. Did you change yourself? Not quite. God changed me. I repented. I turned. But it was because God dealt with me in that sermon. It was because God dealt with me over that period. He showed me my sin and he brought me to himself. And I could pick on any other believer here, couldn't I? And some of you will say, well, I can't tell the sermon. I can't tell the hour. I can't tell the minute. That's fine. Can you tell me the month? No. Can you tell me the year? Maybe. Can you tell me that you no longer think the way you once thought and that you no longer live the way you once lived because you have heard of the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ? I can tell you that. One thing I know, that I was blind, but now I see. Every sinner who doesn't know Christ Jesus needs this gospel and this response as much as any of the Jews to whom Peter preached in the porch of Solomon. You need it if you have not yet come to Jesus Christ. You may not have held the hammer in your hand. You may not have put the nail against his flesh. You may not have mocked and jeered as he walked out of Jerusalem. You may not have spat and mocked with the Roman soldiers. You may not have laughed and sneered with the Jews around Calvary. But if you haven't yet believed in this Jesus, repent and turn to God. It doesn't end there. Here is the marvel of grace. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before. See, when you are converted, when you repent and you turn to God, in coming to God by Jesus Christ, first of all, your sins are blotted out. How precious that must have been to the men and women who suddenly realised that they had killed the Holy One and the just, that they denied him, that they had forsaken him, that they had chosen a murderer over the Son of God. What shall we do? You understand now, perhaps, why they began to cry that out when Peter had preached at Pentecost. What must we do to be saved? How can we be rid of this God-condemning, God-murdering, Christ-denying sin that we have committed? Peter says, if you repent and if you turn to God, your sins will be blotted out. What, even this? Yes, even that of denying the Son of God. Even that of choosing a murderer over him. Even that of murdering, killing the Prince of Life. In Isaiah 44 and verse, uh, verse 2, 
Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty, floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Why? Because this is God, the first and the last, and besides him there is no God, and no one can proclaim as he does. God himself says, I will put life where there is death. I will take away all your transgressions. At this point in history, some of you boys and girls will remember this from your lessons at school. When the Romans used to make records of things, what did they write on? They didn't have tablets or phones and write little documents and then delete them when they'd finished. What did they write on, Josh? Plaques. Yeah. Yeah? They had little tablets with wood around them. And what was in them that they used to scratch on with a wooden stick? Wax. So yeah, they had those little tablets, these little plaques with wax in them. And they would mark out the debts. So if you were shopping in a Roman store, they'd have the little tablet in front of them and a little stylus, a sharp stick, and they'd top up your, your costs. And then you'd pay them. And what would they do? They'd take the stylus with a sharp edge, they'd put it on the wax, they'd scrape it down, and there's no debt left. The wax has been wiped clean. Everything has been erased. The debt's been paid. There's not a mark of it left. And that's what Peter says the Lord God will do when you repent and you turn to Jesus Christ. He will blot out your transgressions. He will erase your debt against him. And more than that, times of refreshing will come from the face of God. It's a beautiful picture. When we hit the fifth verse of that first psalm, I was thinking, it's warming up in here. But the windows are open. There's a cool breeze that comes through. You know what it's like when you're really, really hot. and Your skin is burning up. And the cool breeze hits you. How refreshing. How peaceful. How restorative. How reviving. Now imagine the cool breeze that comes from the very face of God to blow upon your troubled and heated soul and to bring you peace and joy and life and light and hope and rest some of you don't know that you live with turmoil your soul is hot and disordered but if you repent and turn to God in his son Jesus Christ he will blot out your transgressions and you will feel the cool and healing breeze that comes from the very face of God himself to soothe your disordered soul, to refresh and restore your troubled heart, 
to make clean your life. And then the sending of Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Do you see how this now plugs back into Romans chapter 8? Whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Ultimately, they will be conformed body and soul to the image of his son when that son returns in his risen glory at the end of all things. What does Peter preach to these people? Repent, be converted, and wait for God's Son from heaven. He has come because he was preached to you before. Heaven has received him until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken. You killed the Holy One and the just. You killed the Prince of Life. You chose a murderer over the Son of God. And if you repent, and if you are converted, then you will be looking forward eagerly to his return. Is that not grace? I killed him. I called for his blood. I denied that he was who he said he was. How can I not tremble with fear at the prospect of the return of this same Jesus in glory? Repent and your sins will be blotted out. Turn to God. Times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. And your relationship with this God in his Christ will be so transformed that you will be eagerly waiting For his son, Jesus Christ, heaven has received him until the times of restoration of all things. And when he comes, it will not be your damnation, but your vindication. It will not be the end of any joy and happiness, but the very beginning of all joy and happiness. Repent, therefore, and be converted. Have you heard the voice of Jesus? Have you heard the call of God? Come tonight to Jesus Christ. Repent. Be converted. That your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before. And those of you who have, do you not marvel again tonight at the grace of God in Christ toward you? Where should you be? In hell. Where are you now? On the path to heaven. The sins which should have damned you have been put to the account of Jesus Christ, your Saviour. God has blotted out everything that you have done that was contrary to him. 
God has refreshed and restored your parched soul. And God has given you the hope of the coming of Jesus Christ. You're not as amazed as you should be, are you? You're not as full of praise as you ought to be, are you? You're not as open in testifying of the Jesus who has saved you, are you? Too easily ashamed, too often distant, too much careless. God sent his son and he died in the place of his people. God sent his preachers, pretty shoddy ones sometimes. Some of them barely knew what they were saying. God sent the Bible. God sent a friend. God sent a family member. God sent a tract. But God called you. And you heard God speak. Repent and be converted. And looking back you say, He turned me. And I have been turned. And this is my God. And this is my Christ. And these are my blessings.